welcome back to another episode of Pitch Black. I'm your host, Matthew Wilson. Uh, back on a show that talks about African-Americans and black people in soccer, at home, uh, nationally, and abroad. Uh, keep in mind, this show is not just for black folks. It's for anyone that loves sports. Um, like I said uh, in past episodes, this is just kind of a niche topic to really inspire black folks that may seem hesitant about uh, their views of soccer or playing and you know, maybe involve them in it. So I'm going to bring in different topics based on local, national, and international levels. And today we're going to have some great topics. Uh, as you've realized, it's been a couple of months uh, that I've been on here uh, just trying to get a lot of information and the show is going to be pretty much every two weeks so that way I can have enough information to share with you and this time I have a bunch of doozies going into some very historic events so please stay with me and enjoy the show. Alright, today we're going to start off on the international front. Uh, there's been a lot going on with the U.S. men's national team. Um, a, they've actually been on a pretty good win streak. Uh, they've had uh, only one loss in the past three games. They recently played El Salvador, Canada, and Honduras. So, as usual, I like to look into that and see who are the black players that are contributing to this diverse uh, roster that the United States have. Um, so to start off with the, uh, let's see, the El Salvador game. So that was 1-0, to 1-0 uh, in favor of the United States. And then, uh, you know, as usual, I look at the roster percentage. Um, and the starting percentage, uh, as far as black players, was 63%. The starting um, 11 and out of the total 15 that played, um, it was 60%. It was 9 out of 15 uh, with that goal going to... Let's see, who was that? Um, I think it was uh, Anthony Robinson. Anthony Robinson. So that's also a good start. That put that helped put uh, the United States uh, higher on the World Cup qualifying for the CONCACAF uh, 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 location. Um, and then the next game was against Canada, which was a doozy and a loss. Uh, that was one I actually was able to watch. Um, and... There was something that really amazed me about Canada, other than them just scoring a, a, a second goal uh, with, within the last um, five, uh, five extra minutes of uh, extra play time in the game. They have a considerable black population in Canada. Now, uh, I'll chalk it up to ignorance. I never thought about the black player population or the black population in Canada to begin with, but uh, it definitely uh, helps to tie in uh, with uh, this whole theme. Um, so to start off with the United States, uh, 9 out of 11, 82% of the starting roster was black. Um, 11 out of 15 of the total players for the United States was uh, 73%. Um, and on the flip side for Canada, 7 out of 11, 63%, um, and 9 out of 13, 69%. Now, I, I see these numbers um, just as a reflection, as I mentioned earlier, not to um, belittle any other ethnicity, uh, but to just kind of bring recognition to there are black players being played and you know uh, that are playing, and uh, the theme of racism. While, as I've admitted before, racism can exist in any and every facet, um, 
these organizations are not systematically uh, set up uh, against black folks, uh, whether it's in Canada or the United States. Uh, keeping in mind that the United States black population is about 13%. So to say that you have 82 to 73, 73 to 82% of your roster that's played, um, you know, uh, to be black and your population of black folks in the United States is 13%. And uh, similar for the Canada, their uh, black population is 3.5% with 63 to 69% uh, representation on their team. So um, th this, this is a good sign that black players are becoming involved. They're becoming involved. Uh, yeah, a decent amount of the black players are from overseas as far as being born in England or Haiti and having dual citizenship or even claiming, um, uh, uh, obtaining, I should say, citizenship later on in life. Uh, but there are local, um, uh, more and more local players that are black players that are joining these teams and moving up the ranks. Uh, which lets me go to the last game. The most recent game was against Honduras, three to nil. So that was definitely, uh, I would say it's kind of unfair because they played in St. Paul where the temperature was four degrees. So uh, just imagine coming from a very tropical Central American uh, country and moving to <laughs> and playing uh, a high intensity, fast paced game in four degrees weather. So it, it definitely wasn't set up for the best opportunity, but uh, you played a game uh, to see if you could win. And uh, that was actually, the goal scoring was started off by a good old Weston McKinney from Texas. Uh, definitely one of my favorites uh, plays on uh, Juventus right now. And that uh, actually was probably the lowest uh, um, black uh, player representation in 40% to 55% between uh, total players and starting players. Um, but, uh, and to go back to one thing, uh, to go back to one other thing, the, the Canada game. One thing that was uh, interesting about that was one of the fans, uh, Drake, as we realized Drake is a Canadian. He's born in Canada, uh, Canada to Toronto area, I believe. And what made this so significant was that the, this was appearance by Drake at a soccer match instead of the NFC or AFC championship games, which were big games. The, in American football, these playoffs in, in the NFL have been incredible. Probably one of the best uh, playoff series that I've ever seen. But to say that a very prominent uh, sports fan and a celebrity, music celebrity, uh, decided to go to the men's national team, uh, the Canadian men's national team against the United States men's national team, and watch them play instead of these high-profile games uh, in America was, to me, uh, probably the most surprising event because, he, you know, we all know about the Drake curse. He goes to certain games, wears certain teams' jersey, and those teams lose. Um, well, obviously, he was wearing a, a Canada jersey, and they won handedly at, at 2-0, as I mentioned earlier. So, um, what does this say? What, what is the whole point of all of the stats and all the you know information as far as the men's national team? Um, and I may, it may be beating a dead horse, but black players in men's soccer is growing. It is growing, it is developing, people are becoming more involved. Um, uh, as I've mentioned to friends that 
this is a good jumping point, not just for American soccer, but for African-Americans in soccer uh, to have this ability to go to the World Cup, which is in November this year, um, due to it being in Qatar and um, the weather conditions being too hot. Uh, it's a great opportunity for them to be on the largest stage, largest sporting stage, or probably largest um, televised event uh, in the world and to also show that there are black players from the United States that are quality level and even hopefully potentially a winning level um, uh, as far as going to uh, deep into the rounds of the World Cup. And that makes a good platform for 2026 where the World Cup's gonna be hosted in um, US, Canada, and Mexico. but obviously majority of the games will be in the United States and you'll have a more immediate viewership from U.S. fans since the time zone uh, as far as broadcasting broadcast will be more beneficial to uh, Americans and that is the hope that these black players along with the the rest of the players your Christian Pulisics, uh, uh, Zimmerman and you know uh, anyone else Brandon Harrison that they get to see the diversity they get they get to see you can be a world quality soccer player um right in your backyard you, you don't necessarily have to go overseas you don't have to be foreign born you can be a quality player so um kudos to the united states men's national team for uh moving up those ranks uh right now they tied for second or actually they might have the tiebreaker against mexico so uh, their second in the CONCACAF uh, standings and best luck to them three more games left and uh, hopefully by that time that'll be the second podcast uh, uh, for this month um, where we can talk about even more African Americans and black players on the team uh, really succeeding and helping the United States men's national team move further.
All right, welcome back. Uh, right now, this topic, we're going to go on to the national level. What's going on here? But before I do that, I do want to admit I missed one other national team of recognition. Uh, so it's actually going to refer to the women's national team. Now, we all know the women, U.S. women's national team is the cream of the crop as far as uh, not just soccer in America, but soccer around the, the world with uh, multiple World Cups in the past uh, two decades, I believe. Um, so much, much love to them. And obviously this ten, this uh, podcast tends to be more uh, male-centered um, just because they are a lower percentage of African-American males joining soccer uh, than African-American females. But I wanted to give a shout out just because of uh, the, the celebrity status of this person and um, the achievement that they have. Uh, Trinity Rodman, Trinity Rodman for the United States men, uh, Women's National Team. Um, and I know that last name may catch your eye or catch your ear. Uh, she is the daughter of uh, uh, multi-champion uh, Dennis Rodman, who's a basketball player. So uh, that's interesting right there. Obviously coming from an athletic family, but coming from a family where your dad was a basketball player and then choosing to play soccer. Uh, pretty interesting. She is currently, I think she currently signed the largest contract in women's uh, soccer history where she'll be paid around uh, a quarter million dollars a year salary, which is incredible. Uh, and she has been called up to the United States women's national team, uh, which is also a big uh, achievement for African Americans. Uh, so much, much kudos to her. Congratulations. And like I said, I did not want to leave that out as far as uh, black achievements, uh, especially during uh, Black History Month. Um, so going into the national realm, the national realm, I want to talk about and give credit to um, uh, the MLS. Um, as you realize, the New York City uh, Football Club, or NYCFC, uh, did win the championship against, um, the, or the MLS Cup, I should call it, against uh, the Portland uh, Timber. And, uh, a few months ago, and uh, the MVP of that game was Sean Johnson, the goalkeeper, which which is very interesting because, uh, as we probably realize, goalkeepers don't get, get nearly as much recognition and credit for what they do. Um, the regular uh, time ended in a 1-1 tie, I believe, as they went into uh, penalty kicks. And... Uh, he, just by saving two goals, two you know blocking two goals, uh, two goal saves in the penalty kick, uh, allowed his team to have that one extra penalty score that won the game for him. So he was uh, considered uh, MLS Cup uh, MVP, uh, which is incredible. Um, a little bit of history about him because I wanted to give my shout out early to him. Uh, he is from Georgia, not the country Georgia, the state of Georgia. So this is a black player. MVP of the MLS uh, Cup from Georgia. Uh, played his uh, ball, uh, college ball, as far as soccer at um, UCF, University of Central Florida. And uh, if this helps out, his current salary is $460,000. Uh, people may think that's not a lot, but I will take $460,000 in a heartbeat, uh, plus whatever salary or whatever bonuses during the playoffs that this man has received and hopefully potential uh, endorsements for that. Speaking of salary and other uh, local MLS events, um, want to talk about a, a record-setting, um, another record-setting event, mainly just by being alive, 
so the Real Salt Lake, the, the team, the MLS soccer team in Salt Lake City, Utah, uh, just signed the youngest player uh, in prof potentially U.S. professional history uh, as far as a team sport in Exo Kai. Uh, he signed him at the uh, age of uh, 14 years old. Um, uh, sorry, 14 years and 15 days that beats out uh, previous record holder Freddie Adu um, by, I think, about a month or so. Keep in mind, Freddie Adu was the uh, the team prodigy that played for DC United about whew, almost 15 to 20 years ago uh, and had a million-dollar uh, endorsement from Nike before he even played. So uh, a little bit about Exokai. He is originally from the Ivory Coast, a homegrown player as he moved to uh, the United States. Um, potential uh, contract that he's going to have is a, a a guaranteed a two-year contract um, they have not released the financials uh, amount but based on the minimum uh, salary requirements he'd be making 63,000 a year or 126,000 over his two-year uh, contract and obviously plus endorsements because uh, this is an example where MLS knows not only can we really put a stake into the youth players that we want to develop in the United States, this kid will, and I, I know it's hard to use kid because he's a professional, but uh, he is still 14. He is going to grow up with them. Uh, so it is kind of like the, the, the LeBron situation where you have a teenager where players or fans, I should say, uh, are going to be able to grow up watching him. And I, I wish actual Kai uh, a, a very, very long um, career um, and so that made me do a little deep dive into him. Uh, he originally started uh, as a professional player on a lower level uh, for the Real Monarchs. That's kind of like their their farm league, I guess you could call it. Uh, at age 13, uh, 13 years, eight months, and nine days, uh, where he played against the Colorado uh, Switchbacks. And um, I wanted to do a little bit of research into other major league sports players as far as who was the youngest to ever play. Um, in a, a professional sports uh, uh, league. So I looked, um, did some research. Uh, NBA Andrew Bynum at 18 years and eight days for the Lakers. Uh, NFL Omobi Okoye at 19 years for the Texans, which is, in, is very incredible to be a 19-year-old playing in the NFL. Uh, we consider it a grown man's game and uh, 19, uh, being the first and I still believe only teenager uh, in the modern NFL era to play in an NFL game. So that's incredible. Um, uh, Bep uh, Guadillon, sorry, that's NHL. No disrespect to any Canadian followers uh, at age 16. And the MLB, um, which was very interesting, uh, while this kid wasn't the wasn't officially on a team, but the youngest to actually play in a game, uh, Joe Relifred at age 12 years old, um, that's a little bit of black history uh, facts for you right there. So look that up, Joe Relaford. Uh, essentially, he was like the bat boy for a team, a majority if not all white uh, baseball team. Uh, the team was winning by a considerable amount, so uh, the crowd, you know, just for fun, wanted to see the kid play. Uh, he actually went in and caught a fly ball that would have been, um, I'm sorry, caught pretty, pretty much stopped the home run um, that would have happened. Uh, so just imagine being a, an adult professional 
who's being beat so badly, and then when you finally hit the ball <laughs> and it looks like a home run, you have a 12-year-old, um, you know, put you out. So uh, much credit to that. So I, I mentioned that in the sense of uh, this, it's still amazing that there are parents that consider soccer as, you know, or they don't consider soccer as a viable outlet to play sports um, uh, or, or make their way to the uh, pros. Obviously, education and having a good foundation uh, as far as intelligence is the most important things for your, uh, your kids. Uh, but if you are looking, you know, to see if your child can play professional sports, it, it, it doesn't get any more transparent than a 14-year-old. Um, making a salary uh, higher than the average household in the United States. So uh, please take it serious. You know, if you have kids, uh, you know, if you have uh, friends that have kids, um, let them know that this, your talent is not, in soccer is not limited to your age. It's not limited to your height. Uh, it's just limited to your skills. Uh, the best will play. Uh, you can be five foot four, or you can be six foot four. If you're good, you're good. You can be 14, you can be 24, you can be 34. You know, the cream of the crop rises. Um, uh, and just to kind of throw one of my little favorites in as far as age-wise, because uh, obviously we're talking about a 14-year-old, uh, quick happy birthday to one of my uh, favorite players, Cristiano Ronaldo, turning 37. Um, and I think that's that ties in in the sense that, you know, me being a, a, a black person, um, not just that, uh, looking to someone, I understand Christian Ronaldo's not, you know, not a black person, um, but he is one of the first uh, soccer names that I knew, one of the first, uh, uh, you know, folks I looked up on YouTube, you know, to see his skills. And the other interesting thing is, he's a year younger than me, or essentially 11 months younger than me, almost to the date. Um, and, that was an example of I became a fan partially because of his skill, seeing him, and he didn't even have to look like me. Uh, so just imagine if I grew up seeing uh, the the Drogba's, the um, the uh, Thierry Henrys, uh, and and other uh, African um, uh, and black uh, players, you know, in history. That would have, you know, that could have been a, a big jumping point, and you know, no no uh, fault to those players. It's just, you know, uh, the Premier League was not something that was going to be <laughs> televised on US TV at the time when I was a kid uh, in the 90s, in the 80s and 90s. So, um, so back to the original point, the age doesn't matter. He's 37 uh, and there's a professional player here who's 14. Um, that's a, a, let's see, a 23 year difference. I mean, he literally could be his son. And is just a, such a quality game. It, it brings so many people together. So uh, look into that as far as um, if you have any kids or uh, friends with kids. Um, on that note, we're gonna go to the last segment and our quick shout outs for the year, or at least for the uh, past two weeks, uh, sorry, two months um, when we come back. Welcome back. And as I mentioned, I want to do a couple of shout outs. It won't just be a person shout out this time. It'll be a couple of organizations that I wanted to talk about. Uh, one of the first organizations is BWPC, BWTPC, Black Women's 
uh, let's see, Player Collective. Um, and just a little bit about them, uh, just a quick blurb from the article that I read, and you, you can definitely check it out on popsugar.com. Uh, uh, the Women's Sports Foundation reports the dropout rate for girls of color in urban and rural centers is twice that of suburban white girls. To address this, the BWPC, in, a, in partnership with Adidas, one of my favorite brands, Black Players for Change, and the United States uh, Soccer Foundation set out to install 12 mini pitches in predominantly black communities by 2022. So that's this year. Adidas is also working alongside the BWPC to create soccer clinics for young girls. Um, and they just did a couple of clinics in Louisville, Kentucky, and Atlanta uh, around October. And um, they saw, you know, a, a good couple dozen of girl, girls, uh, I'm guessing, assuming girls of color, uh, join up. And um, another organization uh, that I like that's very similar to what I've wanted to do uh, my degree is in, um, my bachelor's degree is in exercise and sports sciences. Uh, my master's is in sportsman, uh, sports management. And um, I wanted to combine, um, you know, my new passion for soccer with, uh, you know, the logistics of running uh, administration or organization uh, that deals with sports and uh, health and fitness. And this is actually probably uh, something very close to it, if not uh, exactly that. Um, and I'll read a quick, uh, you know, uh, uh, quote or phrase from their, uh, um, their website that's opengoalproject.org. Uh, so our football fitness program is a soccer, fitness, and nutrition integrated program where our, our experienced license, op, licensed Open Goal Project coaches work with our players to improve their play on the field while fitness and nutrition sessions are led by an expert in applied science and health science. The program empowers our players to learn how they can stay healthy, get exercise without access to traditional gym equipment, and stick to a more nutritious diet through consistent, impactful exercise routines, challenging soccer sessions, and emphasis on personal growth, and by providing our players with the tools and resources they need to lead a healthier, more nutritious life. Football fitness empowers our boys and girls to become even more talented young soccer players more confident young leaders and happier and healthier young people. So, I mean, that's it in a nutshell. Um, you know, I would like to see something like that all around uh, the country because um, not only does it develop soccer in the United States, whether it's for the uh, the national level or, uh, you know, just the uh, international level, uh, it also develops, you know, the key, the, the cores of health and fitness and, and um, uh, personal growth. Um, you know, uh, there is a... a there's a unhealthy epidemic um, in the United States as far as youth, uh, you know, being obese, and obviously, uh, black youth tends to be uh, even uh, at even higher risk um, for that, especially for heart disease and uh, uh, hypertension, uh, high blood pressure. So, um, I would love to do something like this. And as I say that sentence, I am still planning to do something uh, of that magnitude that both of these organizations are doing. Um, where they, you know, whether it's mini pitches, which is, would be great, actually want to save up and um, or find uh, sponsors and funding for that. Where well, it's a soccer specific uh, pitch, no, no disrespect to football, but soccer specific pitch um, where kids can learn uh, whether they're black, uh, uh, Hispanic, um, or even uh, Vietnamese, uh, Asian, uh, which are some of the, you know, obviously. Uh, demographics in the, uh, in New Orleans uh, that are pretty big 
and bring them all together and teach them about the nutrition, uh, nutritional benefits. You know, you yes, you can want to be a great player, but how are you eating? You know, if you're eating junk food, your your, your skills are going to be limited by what you're putting into your body. Um, you know, how are you personally growing as far as your work ethic? Uh, sports is that obviously a good outlet um, or mirror as far as life, you know, as far as responsibilities, what efforts are you putting into it? How are you dealing with adversity uh, with coworkers, uh, opponents? Um, so shout out to these organizations. Please uh, give them a look. OpenGoalProject.org and uh, uh, Black Women's Players Co uh, Coalition, or you can just type in BWPC. And last but not least, uh, the other shout I wanted to give is to Dwayne Wade. I know, basketball player, what does that have to do with anything? We want to welcome another uh, black, um, you know, owner to of a MLS team. Uh, he has become a, a partial owner of the Real Salt Lake, uh, which definitely blew my mind because uh, Dwayne Wade's from the Chicago area. I remember he played at uh, Marquette. So definitely Midwestern uh, aspect. Uh, Miami uh, Heat, you know, um, player. Obviously won uh, two championships uh, with his friend LeBron and whatnot. But it it is definitely becoming a good investment. Um, people have laughed at the MLS. And I'll admit, years ago, the the thought of the MLS was still new to me and still, um, still almost a joke. You know, it's a serious. Uh, I, I didn't even know much about overseas leagues anyway. But now it's been become an investment. Uh, these uh, these team valuations are rising and getting near uh, the billion dollar mark. Uh, obviously, they're not at the level of the NFL or the NBA, but they're getting there. They're you know they're becoming more popular. The investments are there, and I fail to believe that these multimillionaires, uh, such as Mark Ingram from not long ago, and now uh, Dwayne Wade. James Harden and uh, Kevin Durant and even some more, I fail to believe that they're investing millions of dollars into something that's going to fail. Um, you, you know, it's usually not just them. They have financial advisors. So they're they're hedging their money that these that this league is going to not just succeed, but explode uh, and they get a higher return on investment. So uh, shout out to Dwayne Wade and the Real Salt Lake for having that um uh, having that negotiation and him becoming partial owner. And with that being said, that's the end of this episode. And I appreciate you guys listening. Uh, if you have any questions, any topics you'd like me to talk about, please email me at veralt.com. That's V as in Victor, E-E-R-A-U-L-T at gmail.com. And as usual, I look forward to kicking with you later. Bye. Welcome to another episode of Pitch Black, the show that discusses soccer in African-American culture, nationally, and around the world. I'm your host, Matthew Wilson, and again, we're going to talk about three different, uh, if not four, interesting topics. Uh, we're going to talk about the Austin East soccer team in the Knoxville area, uh, Charlotte's 
new MLS team and its demographics. The style of Rock Nation going into Liga 1 in France. And a couple of new black owners and a little bit of black history uh, shout outs. See you soon. All right, and welcome back. So our first topic, we're going to talk about the Austin East High School soccer team. Now, while this is super near and dear to my heart because I used to be an athletic director, uh, I used to be a high school coach as well, and one of the things that I wanted to do wasn't just the winning aspect, but it was how can I teach local youth something new? You know, how can they excel. Um, one of my first jobs was at a theme park. So having something to do, having something to focus on um, outside of just the regular school day uh, was very important to me. So this is very important uh, to me as well, even as an observer. So in Knoxville, Tennessee, the school, Austin East Magnet High School, pretty much a majority black uh, area, not exclusively, but majority of their uh, demographics there is black. And it was started by essentially two, I guess you would say, teachers or coaches. Um, it was Mr. or Coach Malika Guthrie. Sorry if I got that incorrect. And uh, Coach Netherland. Um, Malika Guthrie or Coach Guthrie, uh, she was the head of the dance team. And one of her, all her dancers had to play soccer too. Uh, and Coach Netherland, as far as the boys head coach, he was the um, a volunteer football player. They both went to the school, um, the high school when they were in high school, I guess you would say. And they wanted to do something different. Obviously, there was a lot of uh, violence in the neighborhood. And co adding that to COVID-19, uh, the pandemic that kind of shut everything down for a while, it really inspired them to do something different, to come out of this uh, with a different aspect, um, and they had been building up the team for a couple of years. In their first year, um, the boys team, uh, they won two games, uh, seven games the next year, then nine years after, uh, nine games the year after that, and they kept climbing up. Um, essentially, it was a blend of the cultures, uh, as they had some players from uh, the West African area that joined. And uh, that's what reminded me uh, of my situation. Um, we had players from all around the world, from Belgium, from uh, Morocco, from England, from Germany, uh, from Honduras. And similar uh, to them, they have players from Tanzania, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, Rwanda, and Iraq. So um, that, that, like I said earlier, caught my attention because... Seeing these international players interact with what we would consider African Americans, uh, you, you know, of African descent, but um, have grown up, or their parents and themselves, ha and most recent ancestors have grown up in America, uh, as opposed to uh, being born uh, in Africa and then moving. But that just kind of set the context for the terms of African American for this state. I mean, for this uh, for, for this topic. Um, so long story short, uh, they went through issues, um, uh, you know, just kind of getting the team together, um, the finances and funding of how to work, um, the team since they, you know, from experience, you can have very good players, but without adequate funding, you can still not reach your goals. 
Uh, it, it's, it's not impossible to reach them, but it is improbable. Uh, just because you're going up against kids or teams that have kids that each one of them are paying two to five thousand dollars, if not more, to play on uh, travel teams and play for academies. Uh, so they're getting the best coaching. They're getting more touches on the ball. Um, but this didn't affect these kids at this time. They 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 went on to win the state championship in their division. And I, you know, it's, I just wanted to give them a shout out because it, it shows that, like I said, it may be improbable, but it's not impossible. Um, so kudos to them. And I implore you, if you have a soccer team at your school, if you have gone to what you would consider a majority, you know, African American school, a school that is high on basketball and football as the top sports, which which are great in their own right. Um, my challenge to you is check on that soccer team. See about you know, don't let certain sports be exclusive or uh, exclusionary to where one ethnicity feels they can't play it um, because that's not the skin tone of what plays it. Um, a little bit more reflection on myself, uh, the high school I went to, uh, we only have one state championship, or at least at the time that I went, they were going to have one state championship, and our demographics of the high school is pretty much 99.999% African American, and surprisingly enough, the only state championship we had was in um, girls golf. And to this day, I think that's still the only state championship trophy that we've had. Even after 20-plus years of not being in high school, the only state championship we have is women's golf at a majority black school. And this was before or during the emergence of the Tiger Woods era. So this, you know, this this young lady, she was playing and winning, um, you know, uh, tournaments and whatnot, regardless of the influence. So... That, that's a testament, and I'm sure many other schools have uh, examples like that, where if we promote certain sports, if we promote that our black youth, or just youth in general, but obviously for the sake of this uh, podcast, that black youth can play any sport that they put their mind to. They can play volleyball, they can play tennis, they can play golf, they, and they can excel in those. They're not pigeonholed to certain sports, and if they're not the best in those sports, they're put away. They can play anything, and obviously we see many times top players play multiple sports anyway. It's just usually uh, they make a choice by the, their senior year to focus on one because um, you have to pretty much be focused on it in order to excel uh, past the competition that you're going to play against. So... Uh, just to you know, just to refresh everything, challenge yourself, challenge your soccer team at your school. If you are a soccer fan, or even if you're not a soccer fan, challenge the black youth and see how can you make a difference. What spark can you make? What uh, upset underdog story can you create to where this is the norm that your best players. Your kids are going to excel no matter what they play and whatever they put their mind to. Okay, welcome back fans. And next we're going to talk about the Charlotte MLS team. Uh, Charlotte FC from what I can gather. Or FC Charlotte. Charlotte FC. Let's just call them Charlotte FC. And I'll correct myself later if, they, if I need to. Um, and 
as you've known, uh, or if you've listened to previous podcasts, one of the most inspiring teams as far as getting me to watch the MLS um, in, in conjunction with uh, Premier League, like League and you know whatnot, but as far as American uh, soccer uh, leagues, was the dominance uh, and emergence, quick emergence and dominance of Atlanta uh, United. And how, you know, they pretty much within, I think, about two or three years, they went from a new team to being uh, MLS champions. And uh, the other um, uh, bonus of that was Atlanta is, you know, considered like the black Mecca. <laughs> Whether it's a joke or an insult or, or, or a compliment, uh, it's considered a black Mecca because it is a hotbed of black culture, uh, many historical um, schools, many historical and culturally significant um uh, things that have happened uh, in black history and U.S. history, which are one and the same um, in, a, in a sense. But uh, the it got me in, you know, involved in checking out, you know, MLS teams and uh, the cities that they're in. Obviously, I would have loved to have one in New Orleans, where I uh, currently live, um, just because I, it's it's something that I think the demographic can really. Uh, catch on to and uh, no offense I think it would be a better attraction than our New Orleans Pelicans which are uh, consistent bottom dwellers but uh, just a quick uh, quick blurb and article I want to read uh, as far as the ethnicity breakdown so so I'm basically reading some of the reasons uh, you know as far as the question this is an article on Guilted Edge uh, definitely a favorite site site you should check it out Guilted Edge uh, I'm sorry, guiltedgesoccer.com. Um, so they're trying to figure out the demographics, you know, because that's one of the things you do as a business. You don't just go into a certain place and, you know, if I if I'm a, a butcher or you know or you know I have a deli, I'm not going to open it up in a place that's probably majority vegan. It, it, I would probably fail uh, very quickly, or you know I'm not going to open a fishing uh, store, you know, in Phoenix. Uh, it's probably not going to do well just because the demographics or the, the resources there don't really match what I'm trying to put out there. Now, as I've mentioned before, uh, obviously I feel like soccer is, uh, you know, uh, an international sport. It's on the level of music and, and um, uh, you know, mathematics as a universal language. It can transcend all um, differences and ethnicities. Uh, so some of the different demographics that they were looking at, obviously, as far as age breakdown, uh, the millennials, I, I'm on the early age of millennials, but um, Charlotte, median age of their uh, citizens, 34.2 years of age, Atlanta's 33.3. Uh, so it's right in there, you know, millennials, where we're coming into the age of like the baby boomers, we, we are the high mass, you know, uh, of population or a big chunk of the population now, obviously voting and, um, you know, economical power. Um, but a little bit further down, they go into the ethnicity breakdown. I'm just going to read, uh, read their article real quickly. So that way you can kind of see the same mindset that I'm looking at, you know, that could, you know, potentially be in your neighborhood too. So a contributing factor for the growth of MLS is the job, uh, the league and many of its team have teams have done reaching minority communities. The arrival of Un Atlanta United to the league and the steps the franchise has taken to showcase local culture and marketing and in games has helped provide a voice to a new wave of fandom from the black community. Specifically, 
While Charlotte isn't quite Atlanta demographically, the success four hours away may serve as a blueprint to reach a wide swath of ethnic groups in the Carolinas. So just their proximity to each other four, uh, four hours away, uh, you know, could be a huge you know, factor. Charlotte is roughly 35% black or African-American and among the total population, um, roughly 15% of metro area residents are Hispanic. Coupled the favorable age and demographics with ethnic diversity in the state predisposed to soccer, and you can see the potential Charlotte has to offer MLS. And uh, so that's one of the main parts of this article that I took from it. Um, New Orleans, for example, um, I think the uh, black population is around, uh, it's less than 60%, but it's still the majority uh, as far as ethnicity uh, uh, ethnic population around probably 55 to 58 percent of the New Orleans um, population is African American or black, and uh, I don't. While I don't have the official um, percentages of Hispanic um, in New Orleans, uh, as I reported in previous, uh, sorry, previous podcasts, that uh, pretty much after Katrina. Um, uh, it's estimated that the New Orleans metro area, so it's the surrounding cities, including the New Orleans and the Metairie and whatnot, um, uh, Honduran population. This is just Honduran, not even all other uh, uh, Latin American um, or Hispanic uh, uh, ethnicities. Uh, this is just Honduran. is about 100,000. 100,000 since uh, 2005. So... I would say that's a pretty huge amount with the metro area. That's probably about 1.2 million people. So that's about 10%, uh, give or take, of the metro area population, which which is very, you know, almost on par with uh, the Hispanic population uh, of Charlotte and the Vietnamese population in, in um, uh, New Orleans compared to population side. We have one of the largest Vietnamese populations in the country. Uh, compared to um, the size of the city. Um, so, those factors, and obviously, you know, having fans of the game is is the primary part, but including, you know, every potential person that is looking for, you know, folks that may have uh, just migrated from, um, you know, other countries that are looking for something similar. Everyone does not catch on to football, like talking about it. Uh, even locals don't always catch on to football. A lot of times people go to our Saints games or, as I mentioned before, our Pelicans uh, basketball games just because uh, it's the tradition. It's what was done because those were the first teams or, you know, obviously the New Orleans Saints uh, was here before the Pelicans. But that doesn't exclude, you don't want to exclude people from enjoying a game just because they don't understand it. Um, we do have pretty much a, a, a dry time as far as sports media uh, in our summertime. Uh, we have a, a professional rugby team, which is a good start as well. Um, but having something in the summer, and obviously MLS in the United States is pretty much our you know spring and summer league. It stretches into the fall as well, pretty much the playoffs. But having that, uh, owning that gap and taking control as the primary sport um you know, following the the in NFL and uh, NBA seasons, um, will be great. It's it's our uh, 
you know, mentioned that it's already uh, reaching more people and uh, as far as their demographics and viewership than Major League Baseball, their viewership is dropping um, and it's rising to the level of uh, NHL. Pretty much it's going to crack into the top three uh, sports as far as viewership uh, within the next five to ten years, especially after the uh, huge, huge World Cup that's coming up in 2026 that's going to be... Um, primarily hosted by the United States, U.S., and Mexico. So, anyway, back to the demographics of Charlotte FC. Um, you know, building their brand, uh, it's going to be a good thing for them. You, you know, you you have your uh, Charlotte Hornets, you have your um, Charlotte, um, uh, I'm sorry, Carolina Panthers, and they're kind of keeping it to the same theme that uh, Pittsburgh does. Pretty much all those teams are going to have that light Carolina blue color um Pittsburgh there the Penguins, the Steelers, uh the the Pirates, their major teams all have black and yellow. Um uh, so it's kind of like a a cross cross sport camaraderie and they're doing it. I, I I really love that. And um being that their the Carolina Panthers owner is also going to be if not the main owner or partial owner, um uh, the primary owner especially with a net, uh, net worth of $14.5 billion, um, is going to cross a uh, market, you know, during, you know, NFL seasons, you know, just to get the percentage of fans of, you know, the Carolina Panthers to be fans of um, the Charlotte FC. Uh, you go from having a 60,000 to almost 70,000 seat stadium. Uh, and you know, if you can fill half that, with soccer fans, you're still reaching, uh, you know, record levels in United States soccer, uh, professional soccer um, attendance. So, uh, great job to them. I wish them the best, best of luck. I really hope that Charlotte FC reaches into those uh, low-income communities to have their homegrown players, you know, not just from your top academies. Obviously, you want to have the best talent, but to not overlook that talent that may be in the inner city or not to, you know, overlook schools that may be traditionally or majority African American but not really have a soccer program set up. It'd be surprising to really develop that soccer program in those neighborhoods, in those schools, and really get the full amount of talent uh, that you can uh that you can grow in your academies and we can see how well they're doing. We'll see if they're the next Atlanta United or uh, it's just a one-off thing. So congratulations to them and looking forward to see them this uh, season in their inaugural season. All right, welcome back for the last segment. It's just going to be kind of a quick fire segment uh, going over some black history uh, shout outs as far as uh, uh, owners, former players, and style and culture. So we're going to start with uh, owners. Uh, give a big shout out to Gabrielle Union. Gabrielle Union, uh, Dwayne Wade's wife. Uh, you know, for all my basketball fans out there, she is one of the uh, co-owners, or she's one of the new co-owners of Angel City FC. Yes, that's the same one with a lot of other stars, including uh, such stars as uh, Serena and Venus Williams. I, I would assume. Uh, Venus is also a part of that, but definitely Serena is uh, one of the co-owners of Angel City FC. It is the women's uh, 
soccer team out in Los Angeles. A beautiful logo, like the name. So kudos to her, you know, putting her money, you know, into a very good investment and uh, just increasing that black ownership into soccer, which is growing and growing, as you can tell, as I've been reporting it uh, every other week or every month. Um, also, want to talk about the Paris Saint-Germain. So Paris Saint-Germain is a, well, I won't say a soccer club in Paris. It is the soccer club, a uh, team that started pretty much in the 70s, and they've been just dominant over the past decade or two. Uh, currently, they have most people's favorite uh, player, Lionel Messi, uh, Neymar, and one of my favorite up-and-comers, uh, Kylian Mbappe. Uh, so along with this star-studded power, they've uh, been a team that has joined uh, um, uh, endorsing and marketing with uh, the Jordan brand. We've seen Jordan brand going to places like uh, the Florida Gators, University of Florida, uh, University of Michigan, to where they have the Jordan logo. It's not the Nike logo like we're all used to. It's the Jordan logo just because it's kind of a you know new uh, uh, extension. Uh, if I'm putting that you know succinctly, so uh, Paris Saint Germain is one of those teams. They've kind of, um, they've crossed over into the English. I'm sorry, European leagues, uh, in order to really promote that brand. Uh, so the point of that is. They have a kit pretty much every year, if not every two years, a new style on their uniforms. So along with the Jordan brand logo, they have, I guess you would say, designed, successfully designed a kit that is reminiscent of the Chicago Bulls kit. Obviously, Jordan, uh, you know, Chicago Bull player for majority, huge majority of his career. And... I implore you to go look at that, you know, check them out, give me your takes on, do you like them? Do you think they should stick to just, you know, uh, other type of designs? Uh, I personally like them. I like the cross-referencing of, uh, you know, playing on the nostalgia of the Chicago Bulls uniform, um, especially as Jordan is a, you know, uh, current um, uh, sponsor and investor um, into the team. So... Give me your looks. Uh, give me your takes on that. Uh, do you like the Perry Saint Germain uh, Chicago Bulls kit? And hopefully next year, when all the um, uh, Gilt Edge usually puts out a yearly um, statistic on top selling uniforms, top selling kits, we'll see if that cracks the top eight uh, in about a year from now. And last but not least, just kind of local again, uh, you know, big shout out and look back to Stern John, uh, former. Uh, former winger for the New Orleans Riverboat, Riverboat Gamblers. Uh, it was in the early parts of the uh, USL, the United Soccer League, um, uh, pretty much the second tier level of soccer in the United States. Uh, 16 goals, ended up playing for the Birmingham, um, uh, sorry, playing for Birmingham Club in the EPL. Uh, so it's good to see talent being developed here and playing overseas. So, that's all I have for you this week. Look back to talk to you in about two weeks again as a, as usual, bi-weekly uh, podcast. I'm going to do some more research. And if you are listening, please email me at v-e-e-r-a-u-l-t the descript, uh, dot com, at, at gmail.com. Sorry about that. Uh, it's actually going to be in the link where you can um, you know send me questions. What do you want me to talk about? What are some questions you have? Uh, as far as soccer, 
how it connects into the black community and how we can develop it in the United States in general. And as usual, look forward to kicking with you later. All right, and welcome back. So our first topic, we're going to talk about the Austin East High School soccer team. Now, while this is super near and dear to my heart because I used to be an athletic director, uh, I used to be a high school coach as well, and one of the things that I wanted to do wasn't just the winning aspect, but it was how can I teach local youth something new? You know, how can they excel? Um, one of my first jobs was at a theme park. So having something to do, having something to focus on um, outside of just the regular school day uh, was very important to me. So this is very important uh, to me as well, even as an observer. So in Knoxville, Tennessee, the school, Austin East Magnet High School, pretty much a majority black uh, area, not exclusively, but majority of their uh, demographics there is black. And it was started by essentially two, I guess you would say teachers or coaches. Um, it was Mr. or Coach Malik. Uh, Guthrie, sorry if I got that incorrect, and uh, Coach Netherland. Um, Malika Guthrie, or Coach Guthrie, uh, she was the head of the dance team, and one of her, all her dancers had to play soccer too, uh, and Coach Netherland, as far as the boys head coach, he was the um, a volunteer football player. They both went to the school, um, the high school when they were in high school, I guess you would say, and they wanted to do something different. Obviously, there was a lot of uh, violence in the neighborhood. And co adding that to COVID-19, uh, the pandemic that kind of shut everything down for a while, it really inspired them to do something different, to come out of this uh, with a different aspect. Um, and they had been building up the team for a couple of years. In their first year, um, the boys team, uh, they won two games. Uh, seven games the next year, then nine years after, uh, nine games the year after that, and he kept climbing up. Um, essentially, it was a blend of the cultures, uh, as they had some players from uh, the West African area that joined, and uh, that's what reminded me uh, of my situation. Um, we had players from all around the world, from Belgium, from uh, Morocco, from England, from Germany. Uh, from Honduras, and similar uh, to them, they have players from Tanzania, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, Rwanda, and Iraq. So um, that that like I said earlier, caught my attention because seeing these international players interact with what we would consider African Americans, uh, you, you know, of African descent but um, have grown up or their parents and themselves ha and most recent ancestors have grown up in America uh, as opposed to uh, being born uh, in Africa and then moving. But that just kind of set the context for the terms of African-American for this state. I mean, for this, uh, for, for this topic. Um, so long story short, uh, they went through issues, uh, you know, just kind of getting the team together um, the finances and funding of how to work um, the team since they, you know, from experience, you can have very good players, but without adequate funding, you can still not reach your goals. Uh, it, it's, it's not impossible to reach them, but it is improbable. Uh, just because you're going up against kids 
or teams that have kids that each one of them are paying two to five thousand dollars, if not more, to play on uh, travel teams and play for academies. Uh, so they're getting the best coaching. They're getting more touches on the ball. Um, but this didn't affect these kids at this time. They 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 went on to win the state championship in their division. And I, you know, it's, I just wanted to give them a shout out because it, it shows that, like I said, it may be improbable, but it's not impossible. Um, so kudos to them. And I implore you, if you have a soccer team at your school, if you have gone to what you would consider a majority, you know, African American school, a school that is high on basketball and football as the top sports, which which are great in their own right. Um, my challenge to you is check on that soccer team. See about, you know, don't let certain sports be exclusive or uh, exclusionary to where one ethnicity feels they can't play it um, because that's not the skin tone of what plays it. A um, little bit more reflection on myself. Uh, the high school I went to, uh, we only have one state championship, or at least at the time that I went there, we only had one state championship. And our demographics of the high school is pretty much 99.999% African American. And surprisingly enough, the only state championship we had was in um, girls golf. And to this day, I think that's still the only state championship trophy that we've had. Even after 20 plus years of not being in high school, the only state championship we have is women's golf at a majority black school. And this was before or during the emergence of the Tiger Woods era. So this, you know, this this young lady, she was playing and winning, um, you know, uh, tournaments and whatnot, regardless of the influence. So... That, that's a testament, and I'm sure many other schools have uh, examples like that, where if we promote certain sports, if we promote that our black youth, or just youth in general, but obviously for the sake of this uh, podcast, that black youth can play any sport that they put their mind to. They can play volleyball, they can play tennis, they can play golf, they and they can excel in those. They're not pigeon-held to certain sports, and if they're not the best in those sports they're put away, they can play anything. And obviously we see many times top players play multiple sports anyway. It's just usually uh, they make a choice by the their senior year to focus on one because um, you have to pretty much be focused on it in order to excel uh, past the competition that you're going to play against. So uh, just to, you know, just to refresh everything, Challenge yourself. Challenge your soccer team at your school. If you are a soccer fan, or even if you're not a soccer fan, challenge the black youth and see how can you make a difference. What spark can you make? What uh, upset underdog story can you create to where this is the norm, that your best players, your kids are going to excel no matter what they play and whatever they put their mind to. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pitch Black, the show that discusses soccer in African-American culture, nationally, and around the world. I'm your host, Matthew Wilson, and again, we're going to talk about three different, uh, if not four, interesting topics. Uh, we're going to talk about the Austin East soccer team in the Knoxville area, uh, Charlotte's new MLS team and its demographics. 
the style of Rock Nation going into Liga One in France. And a couple of new black owners and a little bit of black history uh, shout outs. See you soon. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pitch Black, the show that discusses soccer in African-American culture, nationally, and around the world. I'm your host, Matthew Wilson, and again, we're going to talk about three different, uh, if not four, interesting topics. Uh, we're going to talk about the Austin East soccer team in the Knoxville area, uh, Charlotte's new MLS team and its demographics, the style of Rock Nation going into Liga 1 in France, and a couple of new black owners and a little bit of black history uh, shout outs. See you soon. All right, and welcome back. So our first topic, we're going to talk about the Austin East High School soccer team. Now, while this is super near and dear to my heart because I used to be an athletic director, uh, I used to be a high school coach as well, and one of the things that I wanted to do wasn't just the winning aspect, but it was how can I teach local youth something new? You know, how can they excel. Um, one of my first jobs was at a theme park. So having something to do, having something to focus on um, outside of just the regular school day uh, was very important to me. So this is very important uh, to me as well, even as an observer. So in Knoxville, Tennessee, the school, Austin East Magnet High School, pretty much a majority black uh, area, not exclusively, but majority of their uh, demographics there is black. And it was started by essentially two, I guess you would say, teachers or coaches. Um, it was Mr. or Coach Malika Guthrie. Sorry if I got that incorrect. And uh, Coach Netherland. Um, Malika Guthrie or Coach Guthrie, uh, she was the head of the dance team. And one of her, all her dancers had to play soccer too. Uh, and Coach Netherland, as far as the boys head coach, he was the um, a volunteer football player. They both went to the school, um, the high school when they were in high school, I guess you would say. And they wanted to do something different. Obviously, there was a lot of uh, violence in the neighborhood. And co adding that to COVID-19, uh, the pandemic that kind of shut everything down for a while, it really inspired them to do something different, to come out of this uh, with a different aspect um, and they had been building up the team for a couple of years in their first year um, the boys team uh, they won two games uh, seven games the next year then nine years after uh, nine games the year after that and he kept climbing up um, essentially it was a blend of the cultures uh, as they had some players from um, the West African area that joined and uh, that's what reminded me uh, of my situation. Um, we had players from all around the world, from Belgium, from uh, Morocco, from England, from Germany, uh, from Honduras. And similar uh, to them, they have players from Tanzania, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, Rwanda, and Iraq. So um, that, that, like I said earlier, caught my attention because seeing these international players interact with what we would consider African-Americans, uh, you, you know, of African descent, but um, have grown up or their parents and themselves and most recent answers have grown up in America uh, as opposed to 
being born uh, in Africa and then moving. But that just kind of set the context for the terms of African American for this state. I mean, for this uh, for, for this topic. Um, so, long story short, uh, they went through issues. Uh, you know, just kind of getting the team together, um, the finances and funding of how to work um, the team. Since they, you know, from experience, you can have very good players, but without adequate funding, you can still not reach your goals. Uh, it's, it's not impossible to reach them, but it is improbable, uh, just because you're going up against kids or teams that have kids that each one of them are paying two to $5,000, if not more to play on, uh, travel teams and play for academies. Uh, so they're getting the best coaching. They're getting more touches on the ball. Um, but this didn't affect these kids at this time. They, they, they went on to win the state championship in their division. And, I, you know, it's, I just wanted to give them a shout-out because it, it shows that, like I said, it may be improbable, but it's not impossible. Um, so kudos to them. And I implore you, if you have a soccer team at your school, if you have gone to what you would consider a majority you know, African-American school, a school that is high on basketball and football as the top sports, which, which are great in their own right, um, my challenge to you is check on that soccer team. See about, you know, don't let certain sports be exclusive or uh, exclusionary to where one ethnicity feels they can't play it um, because that's not the skin tone of what plays it. A um, little bit more reflection on myself. Uh, the high school I went to, uh, we only have one state championship, or at least at the time that I went there, we only had one state championship. And our demographics of the high school is pretty much 99.999% African-American. And surprisingly enough, the only state championship we had was in um, girls golf. And to this day, I think that's still the only state championship trophy that we've had. Even after 20 plus years of not being in high school, the only state championship we have is women's golf at a majority black school. And this was before or during the emergence of the Tiger Woods era. So this, you know, this this young lady, she was playing and winning, um, you know, uh, tournaments and whatnot, regardless of the influence. So that that's a testament. And I'm sure many other schools have uh, examples like that, where if we promote certain sports, if we promote that our black youth, or just youth in general, but obviously for the sake of this uh, podcast, that black youth can play any sport that they put their mind to. They can play volleyball, they can play tennis, they can play golf, They and they can excel in those. They're not pigeonheld to certain sports, and if they're not the best in those sports they're put away, they can play anything. And obviously we see many times top players play multiple sports anyway. It's just usually... Uh, they make a choice by the, their senior year to focus on one because um, you have to pretty much be focused on it in order to excel uh, past the competition that you're going to play against. So, uh, just to you know, just to refresh everything, challenge yourself, challenge your soccer team at your school. If you are a soccer fan, or even if you're not a soccer fan, challenge the black youth and see 
how can you make a difference? What spark can you make? What uh, upset underdog story can you create to where this is the norm, that your best players, your kids are going to excel no matter what they play and whatever they put their mind to? Hello and welcome to another episode of Pitch Black, the show that discusses soccer in African-American culture, nationally, and around the world. I'm your host, Matthew Wilson, and again, we're going to talk about three different, uh, if not four, interesting topics. Uh, we're going to talk about the Austin East soccer team in the Knoxville area, uh, Charlotte's new MLS team and its demographics, the style of Rock Nation going into Liga 1 in France, and a couple of new black owners and a little bit of black history uh, shout-outs. See you soon. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pitch Black, the show that discusses soccer in African-American culture, nationally, and around the world. I'm your host, Matthew Wilson, and again, we're going to talk about three different, uh, if not four, interesting topics. Uh, we're going to talk about the Austin East soccer team in the Knoxville area, uh, Charlotte's new MLS team and its demographics, the style of Rock Nation going into Liga 1 in France, and a couple of new black owners and a little bit of black history uh, shout-outs. See you soon. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pitch Black, the show that discusses soccer in African-American culture, nationally, and around the world. I'm your host, Matthew Wilson, and again, we're going to talk about three different, uh, if not four, interesting topics. Uh, we're going to talk about the Austin East soccer team in the Knoxville area, uh, Charlotte's new MLS team and its demographics, the style of Rock Nation going into Liga 1 in France, and a couple of new black owners and a little bit of black history uh, shout-outs. See you soon. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pitch Black, the show that discusses soccer in African-American culture, nationally, and around the world. I'm your host, Matthew Wilson, and again, we're going to talk about three different, uh, if not four, interesting topics. Uh, we're going to talk about the Austin East soccer team in the Knoxville area, uh, Charlotte's new MLS team and its demographics, the style of Rock Nation going into Liga 1 in France, and a couple of new black owners and a little bit of black history uh, shout-outs. See you soon. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pitch Black, the show that discusses soccer in African-American culture, nationally, and around the world. I'm your host, Matthew Wilson, and again, we're going to talk about three different, uh, if not four, interesting topics. Uh, we're going to talk about the Austin East soccer team in the Knoxville area, uh, Charlotte's new MLS team and its demographics, the style of Rock Nation going into Liga 1 in France, and a couple of new black owners and a little bit of black history uh, shout-outs. See you soon. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pitch Black, the show that discusses soccer in African-American culture, nationally, and around the world. I'm your host, Matthew Wilson, and again, we're going to talk about three different, uh, if not four, interesting topics. Uh, we're going to talk about 
the Austin East soccer team in the Knoxville area, uh, Charlotte's new MLS team and its demographics, the style of Rock Nation going into Liga One in France, and a couple of new black owners and a little bit of black history uh, shout outs. See you soon. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pitch Black, the show that discusses soccer in African-American culture, nationally, and around the world. I'm your host, Matthew Wilson, and again, we're going to talk about three different, uh, if not four, interesting topics. Uh, we're going to talk about the Austin East soccer team in the Knoxville area, uh, Charlotte's new MLS team and its demographics, the style of Rock Nation going into Liga One in France, and a couple of new black owners and a little bit of black history uh, shout outs. See you soon. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pitch Black, the show that discusses soccer in African American culture nationally and around the world. I'm your host, Matthew Wilson, and again, we're going to talk about three different, uh, if not four, interesting topics. Uh, we're going to talk about the Austin East soccer team in the Knoxville area, uh, Charlotte's new MLS team and its demographics, the style of Rock Nation going into Liga One in France, and a couple of new black owners and a little bit of black history uh, shout outs. See you soon. All right, welcome back for the last segment. It's just going to be kind of a quick fire segment uh, going over some black history uh, shout outs as far as uh, uh, owners, former players, and style and culture. So we're going to start with uh, owners. Uh, give a big shout out to Gabrielle Union. Gabrielle Union, uh, Dwayne Wade's wife. Uh, you know, <laughs> for all my basketball fans out there, she is one of the uh, co owners, or she's one of the new co owners of Angel City FC. Yes, that's the same one with a lot of other stars, including uh, such stars as uh, Serena and Venus Williams, I, I would assume. Uh, Venus is also a part of that, but definitely Serena is uh, one of the co-owners of Angel City FC. It is the women's uh, soccer team out in Los Angeles. A beautiful logo, like the name. So kudos to her, you know, putting her money, you know, into a very good investment. And uh, just increasing that black ownership into soccer, which is growing and growing, as you can tell, as I've been reporting it uh, every other week or every month. Um, also, want to talk about the Paris Saint-Germain. So Paris Saint-Germain is a, well, I won't say a soccer club in Paris. It is the soccer club uh, team that started pretty much in the 70s, and they've been just dominant over the past decade or two. Uh, currently, they have most people's favorite uh, player, Lionel Messi, uh, Neymar, and one of my favorite up-and-comers, uh, Kylian Mbappe. Uh, so along with this star-studded power, they've uh, been a team that has joined uh, um, uh, endorsing and marketing with uh, the Jordan brand. We've seen Jordan brand going to places like uh, the Florida Gators, University of Florida, uh, University of Michigan, to where they have the Jordan logo. It's not the Nike logo like we're all used to. It's the Jordan logo just because it's kind of a you know new uh, uh, extension. Uh, if I'm putting that you know succinctly, so uh, Paris Saint Germain is one of those teams. They've kind of, um, they've crossed over into the English 
I'm sorry, European leagues uh, in order to really promote that brand. Uh, so the point of that is they have a kit pretty much every year, if not every two years, a new style on their uniforms. So along with the Jordan brand logo, they have, I guess you would say, design, successfully designed a kit that is reminiscent of the Chicago Bulls kit. Obviously, Jordan, uh, you know, Chicago Bull player for majority, huge majority of his career. And I, I implore you to go look at that, you know, check them out, give me your takes on, do you like them? Do you think they should stick to just, you know, uh, other type of designs? Uh, I personally like them. I like the cross-referencing of, uh, you know, playing on the nostalgia of the Chicago Bulls uniform, um, especially as Jordan is a, you know, uh, current... Um, uh, sponsor and investor um, into the team. So give me your looks, uh, give me your takes on that. Uh, do you like the Perry Saint Germain uh, Chicago Bulls kit? And hopefully next year, when all the um, uh, Gilt Edge usually puts out a yearly um, statistic on top selling uniforms, top selling kits, we'll see if that cracks the top eight uh, in about a year from now. And last but not least, just kind of local again, uh, you know, big shout out and look back to Stern John, uh, former uh, former winger for the New Orleans Riverboat, Riverboat Gamblers. Uh, it was in the early parts of the uh, USL, the United Soccer League, um, uh, pretty much the second tier level of soccer in the United States. Uh, 16 goals, ended up playing for the Birmingham, um, uh, sorry, playing for Birmingham Club in the EPL, uh, so it's good to see talent being developed here and playing overseas. So that's all I have for you this week. Look back to talk to you in about two weeks again, as I as usual, bi-weekly uh, podcast. I'm going to do some more research, and if you are listening, please email me at v e e r a u l t the uh, dot com at, at gmail dot com. Sorry about that. Uh, it's actually going to be in the link where you can, um, you know, send me questions. What do you want me to talk about? What are some questions you have uh, as far as soccer, how it connects into the black community, and how we can develop it in the United States in general? And as usual, look forward to kicking with you later.